Welcome to Canadian Defence Focus from CDR Radio, produced by Canadian Defence Review Magazine. This series of podcasts features interviews with leaders and experts in the defence industry, as well as reports and profiles on the very latest in defence technology. Hello, and welcome to another edition of the CDR Radio podcast. I'm James Careless, Ottawa Bureau Chief with Canadian Defence Review, Canada's leading defence magazine. This time on the CDR Radio podcast, we're speaking with Alan Williams about the soaring costs and lengthy delays of the Canadian Surface Combatant Procurement, CSC for short. The CSC is the federal government's program to update the Royal Canadian Navy's aged fleet with 15 new frigates. According to media reports, the cost of this procurement has grown from $28 billion to a quarter of a trillion dollars, and it's still climbing. Plus, the CSC's expected delivery schedule is now a decade late. When it comes to making sense of such procurements, Alan Williams is the expert you want to talk to. He is a former Assistant Deputy Minister of Materiel at DND. Alan Williams is now President of the Williams Group, which provides expertise in the areas of policy, programs, and procurements. He has authored two books, Reinventing Canadian Defence Procurement, A View from the Inside, and Canada, Democracy, and the F-35. Hi, Alan. Thanks for joining us on the CDR Radio podcast. Pleasure to be here, Jim. Okay, Alan, from where you stand, what is going wrong with the Canadian Surface Combatant Project? Well, there's a terrific history to this that is frankly very, very disturbing. You could say that, in fact, the whole process to buy these Canadian surface combatant ships has been a total fiasco. As of today, the best guess is that we won't begin receiving our first ship until the early 2030s. That's about 20 years since the government announced its its shipbuilding strategy. I mean, that's a crazy amount of time. Perhaps more importantly, it has to deal with the costs. And first of all, let me apologize a little bit to you here. Jim, because I know you're an avid Maple Leaf fan, but let me give you an analogy as to how bad the cost is. As, uh, as you will recall, a few weeks back, the, your, your beloved Maple Leafs lost to the Canadians. And a lot of discussion afterwards focused on what happened. And there was comments that the top four players on the team received the vast amount of payroll available. Uh, to the team. And the question became, well, can you can you surround these four players with enough uh, quality other players so that you can win a Stanley Cup? And I guess we won't know for a few years. And so everybody was saying, well, we'll give them a chance. We'll give management a chance to figure this out. But what would you think the reaction would have been had these four players consumed the entire payroll for the Maple Leafs? I think in such a case, the obvious answer would be a huge outcry, get rid of this management team. They don't know what they're doing. You can't pay four players the entire budget. Yet this is exactly what is going on with these ships. The fact is that these ships will cost more than a quarter trillion dollars and by themselves will exceed the entire budget available over the next 30 years within defense to buy and maintain not just these ships, but everything that the Navy needs, the Army needs, and the Air Force needs all combined. So you can forget about buying jets, icebreakers, vehicles, pistols, 
You can forget about upgrading existing weapon platforms. If the plan continued as, as is, it would DND would be unable to fulfill its mandate. This would be like the COVID-19 pandemic. It would threaten the health and safety of Canadians. But unlike the pandemic, this would be a made-in-Canada threat. Now, as I understand it, the numbers you're citing are not numbers you've come up with. They're actually the official numbers. Is that correct? Well, the numbers that I'm quoting you actually come from the Department of Defense and from the Department of Budgetary Office. The Office of the Department of Budgetary Office was asked to cost the acquisition of these ships. And they did, and they said it's about $77 billion to buy these ships. But of course, buying these ships is not the whole cost. You have to support them. And uh, within the Department of National Defense's own costing manual, as well as within the US Department of Defense's own estimates, own, own acquisition guide, the basic factor that is applied is a factor of 2.7. That is, that it costs 2.7 times as much to maintain the asset as it does to buy the asset. So if you apply these figures to the PBO's uh, uh, estimate of 73 billion, you get a total cost of about 286 billion. Now, over the 30-year period of time within defense, it has about 240 billion to service the needs of all of its environments, the Army, the Navy, and the Air Force. So as I said, these ships as currently planned are totally, totally unaffordable. Okay, now how exactly did this come to pass? And what are the gaps in the federal procurement process that allowed this to happen? Well, I think anybody that knows procurement knew at the outset that the strategy, the National Shipbuilding Procurement Strategy was flawed. Uh, I, in fact, and I'm sure there were others, reported back as far as 2013 that uh, this thing was going to be a disaster. Um, and there are a number of reasons for it. First, I'll, I'll just give you a, a few basic ones. When you talk about these billions of dollars to buy things, that's a federal government responsibility. This is the first case that I am aware of where the government decided, you know what, we're not going to do this ourselves. Let's let industry make all the key decisions. So it, in fact, tasked Irving Shipyards, the company where these ships are going to be built, and said to them, look, you, you get in charge. You decide who you will partner with in terms of the, selecting the systems. Uh, you decide what the design will be of the ship. And as you may be aware, they picked a design, a Type 26 design, as it's called, that uh, frustratingly was not even fully operational, which is what the government said it was going to do. It was going to try to remove developmental programs um, and, and only acquire things that are fully operational. This design was not. It selected systems, like its radar, which were not fully operational and had a lot of developmental work to convert it to a ship platform. So it entrusted the private sector to do that. And as part of that, it allowed them to, if you want, play with, address, modify uh, the, the requirements that are gonna be necessary for these ships. And this is very fundamental because the foundation upon which a good procurement is based is in fact a statement of requirements. This statement of requirements um, is in fact the, the document 
that everything else is founded upon. So if it is built on a solid base, the procurement works. If it's not, the procurement flounders. And in this particular, and, and typically within the department, I should add, in my old role as the Assistant Deputy Minister of Materiel, when, when um, a, a procurement would come to the table for debate and discussion and challenge function, my role would always be to ensure three things. First of all, that the requirements that, in this case, the Navy was asking for, were in fact affordable. In other words, they were, you could actually buy this within the given budget that we had for the program. Secondly, that there was very, very little developmental work, if any, that was required. So that again, you wouldn't have high risks. And third of all, that there is a competitive marketplace because if you wanna reduce the costs, uh, you wanna make sure that there's a viable competition. So none of these things were done in this case. The statement of requirements was provided to uh, Irving um, in a preliminary form. And they had been working uh, with um, their chosen integrator, Lockheed Martin, um, to refine, modify these requirements. I mean, this is sort of like asking the fox to guard the henos. Without any, without any budget constraint, they did exactly what you'd expect them to do. And here we are today, um, and to use a car analogy, industry is building us a bespoke uh, Porsche when the Navy only can afford a Chevrolet. That's the conundrum we're in right now. Now, how did we get to this stage? Well, there are a lot of people that you can point a finger at. You can certainly point a finger at the Minister of Public Service and Procurement Canada, PSPC, um, who's accountable for the integrity of the process. How she and her officials allowed this uh, process uh, to be, to be uh, signed off on boggles the mind. Um, you can look at the Standing Committee on uh, Government Operations and Estimates, OGO as it's called. Um, it asked the PBO, the Parliament Budgetary Office, to report on the costs. But instead of asking the PBO to report on the full LISO costs, it only asked them to report on the costs to acquire these ships. So getting the right answer to the wrong question is really not very helpful at all. Um, now that 77 figure, uh, billion dollar figure, the DND would dispute. They would say it's between 56 and 60, but they would also acknowledge the taxes aren't included in DND's estimates. So at the end of the day, you're not talking about figures that are too different. The Auditor General also looked at this, but her report was, was totally, totally inept. She made comments like, you know, obtain reliable schedules and monitor progress and improve risk management. Nothing legitimately of concern. She didn't talk about the, the flawed procurement process. She didn't talk about the lack of full life cycle costs um, that were unaffordable. Um, she did none of those things. She didn't talk about the reporting uh, deficiencies that could have provided a red light warning, if you will, that the CSC project was in financial crisis. And then let me just talk about reporting a little bit. Um, the, the, the Department of Defense produces what it calls a defense investment plan, a DIP. It did it in 2018, then modified it in 2019. And this was supposed to be a critical reporting mechanism that allowed everybody to see uh, what were the costs of the programs. Now, if this were the case, uh, this would be wonderful. But the fact is that it didn't include the life cycle costs for each program. It didn't include this. So without having that, the, the report itself was, was virtually useless 
and uh, and of little or no value. So what would be the impact of the CSC if it went ahead as it is? Well, as I said earlier on, it would just gut or eviscerate the department, uh, DND's budget. It wouldn't be able to fill its mandate. And uh, the safety and security of Canadians would clearly be jeopardized. Okay, our Navy certainly needs new ships. So how would you propose we procure them? Does the U.S. Navy offer any lessons that we should be paying attention to? Well, uh, as I said earlier on, um, these are unaffordable. But the fact is that the costs are also unreasonable. Um, You mentioned the U.S. Navy. Well, it recently undertook a procurement for ships that, like our ships, are supposed to be multi-mission guided missile frigates. So directly comparable to the CSC, even though they're not exactly the same. Their costs converted to Canadian dollars are about one third of our costs. So we know that there's something amiss right here in terms of our process. Perhaps even closer to home, in 2017, the Italian company Fincantieri, which is a world leader in ship design and construction, it in fact submitted an unsolicited proposal to the government saying that they would build these 15 ships at a fixed cost in the same shipyard using the same employees for a cost of $30 billion, less than half of the current costs. The Liberal government rejected the offer. But we know from these two instances that these are totally unaffo- not only unaffordable, uh, but, um, but in fact, unreasonably high as well. So um, alternative approaches have, have, in fact, have to be found. Now, if we were going to buy these ships, um, my suggestion would be uh, to buy three under the current format. It's flawed, and we're going to waste some money on them. But to limit legal exposure, I would continue this way for three ships. But immediately, I would undertake an, an appropriate uh, procurement process to build the other 12. Um, and if we do that immediately, we would be able to achieve um, the 15 ships and not delay the process any further. So that's, I think, what I would, that would be the approach that I would undertake. But isn't it too late? Can we break the CSC contracts? We're not really breaking the contracts. The contracts to sign the actual construction of the ships haven't been signed yet and are planned not to be signed, I think, until 2023. Okay. So how do you see the CSC process playing out, given the political realities in Ottawa and the civil service? Well, I doubt that in the short term, the government's going to come clean on the total costs. I don't think it'll do anything um, significant or make any pronouncements until potentially after the next election, which I'm envisioning might be in the fall. I don't think it wants to raise these red flags and potentially embarrass itself. Having said that, um, it will have no option but to do something different. As I've explained, you just cannot build these 15 ships at this price. And so I think, again, the pragmatic approach would be do three this way and then uh, undertake a procurement strategy that does things the right way. Again, what do I mean by that? Well, first of all, take ownership and control and accountability for it within the government. Don't offload it to a third party. Uh, Develop a statement of requirements that is hard and clear and fixed and provide this to industry and say to industry, these are our requirements. This is our budget. Organize yourselves to meet our needs. 
submit your proposals. Um, we will be signing a fixed cost contract with you. There will be penalties built into it for any delays, especially with regard to delivery. If you follow that approach, we will get the best value for the 12 ships that would follow the initial three. Okay, well, finally, what changes could be made to the federal procurement process to keep this and other fiascos from happening again? In listening to you, I kind of feel like it's a situation that we keep giving the kids our credit card and things keep going wrong. Well, they do. And there's no way to prevent these kinds of debacles um, all the time. Things will go wrong. I doubt very much that can, they can go as wrong as this one has. But I think it's important for people to understand that these processes are run by people, people make legitimate mistakes, and uh, we can't castigate every time there's a mistake. Having said that, there are, I think, three fundamental things that should be done. And these are things that actually that I pointed out in my book that I published in 06 called Reinventing Canadian Defense Procurement, A View from the Inside. First, um, this may shock some people, but there is no minister accountable for defense procurement in the government. Right now, the overlap and duplication between the ministers of defense and um, Public Service Procurement Canada really means that the accountability is muddied. And I think everybody basically understands that when you muddy accountability, discipline and rigor and attention to detail are missing. You always have a subconscious understanding that you that you're not, you can blame somebody else or somebody else is going to look over his shoulders and double check. He could be a little bit more, more um, uh, circumspect and, and uh, not be as rigorous as he may have wanted to do. Equally important is we don't have performance measures. Um, most other countries are not all have reports that come out. We don't because we don't have one minister accountable for the entire process. So monitoring timeliness, monitoring costs, uh, monitoring the percentage of sole sourcing, all these key variables we don't have. Now, uh, I, I, was, I was happy to see finally, uh, 13 years after I put this out, that the government, the prime minister, tasked uh, the minister of PSPC, Anita Anon, to bring forward proposals and analysis to support this notion of one organization. Um, but I guess I was overly optimistic because it's now been a year and a half and we haven't heard a peep about this. But I think that has to be done. Now, I should point out, having one minister in charge won't solve all the problems. But until you do that, um, the system will never be as good or as effective as it should be. Uh, secondly, we talked about uh, the problems with the defense investment plan. What we do need is a long-term cabinet-approved cabinet plan. I say cabinet-approved because unless something has cabinet approval and is in the public domain, uh, there always is the potential for political purposes, for governments to sort of say, you know, for we think politically it'd be good if you guys want to buy, if you guys buy this. I know you don't need it, but politically it's nice to see. Um, you wanna prevent that kind of political interference. If it's cabinet approved in public, it doesn't mean it can't be changed, but it does mean that in order to change it, it will be up, there will be public scrutiny and people will be able to ask, why are you now putting this up front? What has changed? And that's, that's great, that's openness and transparency and that's good for democracy. 
And this long-term capital plan, not only should it be cabinet approved, but it should include the long-term cost for each program. So by having a a year-by-year detailed outline of each project's cost to buy and maintain, you can then easily compare that to the available budget. And you'll know right away whether or not something has to give. Either something has to be removed or additional funds have to be put in place in order for the available funding to match the required needs. And the third thing that I would suggest is, again, what I would call a 21st century defense industrial strategy. We don't have one. Um, All that we have um, on our books is the notion uh, that we have to build ships and buy ammo in Canada. These two things were developed 40, 50 years ago through policies, not even a, not even a clear strategic uh, framework, just by policies that have grown through time. We are currently aware with COVID-19 that uh, we weren't ready for this kind of, uh, uh, of attack on our safety and security. There are major vulnerabilities that are, that are here and that may come up in the future. We need to examine the nuclear, biological, chemical, military, and other threats that are today. There may be new threats tomorrow. We should undertake a rigorous examination of these and ensure that we have the strengths and capabilities to meet these from resources within Canada. Um, I I think it'd be wonderful for the federal government to undertake such a study. You involve the public, you involve uh, provincial leaders, municipalities, law enforcement agencies, academia, research think tanks, communities, and you get a good handle on what our priorities as a country should be and how to achieve them in the medium to long term. Well, thanks, Alan, for joining us today. It's been a pleasure as always, Jim. You've been listening to the latest in the CDR Radio podcast series. They are produced by Canadian Defence Review, Canada's leading defence magazine. I've been speaking with Alan Williams, an expert on defence procurement. He is a former Assistant Deputy Minister of Materiel at DND. Alan Williams is now president of the Williams Group. He can be reached at williamsgroup691 at gmail.com. That's williamsgroup691 at gmail.com. To hear more CDR Radio podcasts, go to www.canadiandefensereview.com or find us on iTunes and Google Play under CDR Radio. I'm James Careless. Thanks for listening to the CDR Radio podcast. Talk to you again next time. Tune in next time for another Canadian defense-focused podcast from CDR Radio.